Chapter Two of the Pearl of Oars Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Pearl of Oars Island by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter Two. Mara. Down near the end of Oars Island, facing the open ocean, stands a brown house of the kind that the natives call lean-to, or linter, one of those large, comfortable structures, barren in the ideal, but rich in the practical which the working man of New England can always command. The waters of the ocean came up within a rod of this house, and the sound of its moaning waves was even now filling the clear autumn starlight. Evidently something was going on within, for candles fluttered and winked from window to window, like fireflies in a dark meadow, and sounds as of quick footsteps, and the flutter of brushing garments, might be heard. Something unusual is certainly going on within the dwelling of Zephaniah Pennell to-night. Let us enter the dark front door. We feel our way to the right, where a solitary ray of light comes from the chink of a half-opened door. Here is the front room of the house, set apart as its place of especial social hilarity and sanctity, the best room, with its low-studded walls, white dimity window-curtains, rag carpet, and polished wood chairs. It is now lit by the dim gleam of a solitary tallow candle, which seems in the gloom to make only a feeble circle of light around itself, leaving all the rest of the apartment in shadow. In the centre of the room, stretched upon a table, and covered partially by a sea-cloak, lies the body of a man of twenty-five. Lies, too, evidently as one of whom it is written, he shall return to his house no more, neither shall his place know him any more. A splendid manhood has suddenly been called to forsake that lifeless form, leaving it, like a deserted palace, beautiful in its desolation. The hair, dripping with the salt wave, curled in glossy abundance on the finely formed head, the flat broad brow, the closed eye, with its long black lashes, the firm manly mouth, the strongly moulded chin. All, all were sealed with that seal which is never to be broken till the great resurrection day. He was lying in a full suit of broadcloth, with a white vest and a smart blue necktie, fastened with a pin, in which was some braided hair under a crystal. All his clothing, as well as his hair, was saturated with sea-water, which trickled from time to time, and struck with a leaden and dropping sound into a sullen pool which lay under the table. This was the body of James Lincoln, shipmaster of the brig Flying Scud, who that morning had dressed himself gaily in his stateroom to go on shore and meet his wife, singing and jesting as he did so. This is all that you have to learn in the room below, but as we stand there, we hear a trampling of feet in the apartment above, the quick yet careful opening and shutting of doors, and voices come and go about the house, and whisper consultations on the stairs. Now comes the roll of wheels, and the doctor's gig drives up to the door, and as he goes creaking up with his heavy boots, we will follow and gain admission to the dimly lighted chamber. Two gossips are sitting in earnest, whispering conversation over a small bundle done up in an old flannel petticoat, to them the doctor is about to address himself cheerily, but is repelled by sundry signs and sounds which warn him not to speak. 
moderating his heavy boots as well as he is able to a pace of quiet. He advances for a moment, and the petticoat is unfolded for him to glance at its contents, while a low, eager, whispered conversation, attended with much head-shaking, warns him that his first duty is with somebody behind the checked curtains of a bed in the farther corner of the room. He steps on tiptoe and draws the curtain, and there, with closed eye and cheek as white as wintry snow, lies the same face over which passed the shadow of death when that ill-fated ship went down. This woman was wife to him who lies below, and within the hour has been made mother to a frail little human existence, which the storm of a great anguish has driven untimely on the shores of life, a precious pearl cast up from the past eternity upon the wet, wave-ribbed sand of the present. Now, weary with her moanings, and beaten out with the wrench of a double anguish, she lies with closed eyes in that passive apathy which precedes deeper shadows and longer rest. Over against her, on the other side of the bed, sits an aged woman in an attitude of deep dejection. And the old man we saw with her in the morning is standing with an anxious, awestruck face at the foot of the bed. The doctor feels the pulse of the woman, or rather lays an inquiring finger where the slightest thread of vital current is scarcely throbbing, and shakes his head mournfully. The touch of his hand rouses her, her large, wild, melancholy eyes fix themselves on him with an inquiring glance. Then she shivers and moans. Oh, doctor, doctor! Jamie, Jamie! Come, come, said the doctor. Cheer up, my girl. You've got a fine little daughter. The Lord mingles mercies with his afflictions. Her eyes closed, her head moved with a mournful but decided dissent. A moment after she spoke in the sad old words of the Hebrew scripture, Call her not Naomi, call her Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. And as she spoke, there passed over her face the sharp frost of the last winter. But even as it passed, there broke out a smile, as if a flower had been thrown down from paradise. And she said, Not my will, but thy will and so was gone. Aunt Roxy and Aunt Ruey were soon left alone in the chamber of death. "'She'll make a beautiful corpse,' said Aunt Roxy, surveying the still, white form contemplatively, with her head in an artistic attitude. "'She was a pretty girl,' said Aunt Ruey. "'Dear me, what a providence! I member the wedding down in that lower room, and what a handsome couple they were.' They were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their deaths they were not divided, said Aunt Roxy, sententiously. What was it she said? Did you hear? said Aunt Ruey. She called the baby Mary. Ah, sure enough, her mother's name afore her. What a still, softly spoken thing she always was. A pity the poor baby didn't go with her, said Aunt Roxy. Seven months' children are so hard to raise. "'Tis a pity,' said the other. "'But babies will live, and all the more when everybody says that it is a pity they should. Life goes on as inexorably in this world as death. It was ordered by the will above that out of these two graves should spring one frail, trembling autumn flower. The Mara, 
whose poor little roots first struck deep in the salt, bitter waters of our mortal life. End of chapter 2